The other day, while I was on a walk, I saw a family of four walking on the opposite sidewalk across the street. The dad with an infant strapped into a baby carrier was in the lead. Close behind was a toddler running after them, and a mom brought up the rear. She called out to her toddler as they approached a side street and knelt down to teach her daughter about being cautious and looking out for cars. The dad who had already crossed the street waited for them. This incident made me smile as I thought of the different ways a mom and a dad teach their children. A mom will use any and every opportunity to convey life lessons to her child. Whereas dads provide less instruction at more strategic intervals and for select topics. Here's one such example revealed in an exchange between a teacher and her young student. Teacher, if you had one dollar and you asked your father for two more, how many dollars would you have? Student, one dollar. Teacher, you don't know your arithmetic. Student, you don't know my father. Happy Father's Day. Before Paul brings his first letter to Timothy and the church in Ephesus to a close, he once again reiterates two dominant themes, that of the false teachers and Timothy's role. The presence of false teachers are the reason behind everything, the reason Timothy has been sent to Ephesus, the reason this letter has been written and sent to Ephesus and the falling away by some in the church there. Characteristic of these false teachers are their conceit, their deviation from the faith and sound teaching, and their dividing the church by their controversies and arguments. Now Paul unmasks the primary motivation behind them. It's greed. These teachers have traded godliness as a means for financial gain. The passage contains Paul's response to their greed and the outcome for them and all those like them who desire money. And finally, Paul gives instructions for those in the church who are already wealthy. Let us hear God's word as read for us by Pat Cuneo. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-10 through 10 and 17-19. through 19. Listen, but godliness combined with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, They'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. 
This is the word of the Lord. During my college years, I had a job in a commercial bakery. As one of the youngest members of the union employment force, I was asked by my co-workers one day, Flowers, what do you want to be when you grow up? I told them I felt called by God to be a pastor. There was silence. And then this reply, well, there's money in that. As if that was the only motivation for choosing a career. At that time, not many ministers were known for being well off. That was prior to the emergence of megachurches, celebrity pastors, and TV evangelists. The false teachers in Ephesus would have agreed with my bakery co-workers. They saw teaching in the church as their opportunity to make a buck. We're not told how they did this, but simply that they promoted godliness as a way to become rich. To counter this point of view, Paul begins by agreeing with their supposition. There is gain in godliness, but then he qualifies it. Provided you mean spiritual gain, not financial, and provided it is accompanied with contentment. In other words, the value of godliness is grounded in a satisfaction with what one has, not coveting what one desires. Godliness is unrelated to wealth. It is not a means to material gain, but it is a means of great gain in and of itself. Contentment was a favorite virtue of Stoic and Cynic philosophers, for whom it meant self-sufficiency, the ability to rely on one's own inner resources. Typical of Paul's teaching, he takes a well-known term and fills it with his own meaning. Autarkia, the word for contentment, is the word Paul uses here as well as in Philippians 4.11, where he turns the table on the Stoics' viewpoint by declaring that genuine contentment is not self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. For Paul, the source of contentment does not reside in the self, but in Christ, who empowers us to thrive whether our experience is one of plenty or of want. Paul gives two reasons for linking godliness with contentment. First, he says, we brought nothing material into this world at our birth, and we can take nothing out of it at our death. With respect to earthly possessions, our entry and our exit are identical. A minister officiated the funeral of a wealthy woman, and he was asked by inquisitive guest how much she left. He replied, she left everything. One commentator states it this way, possessions are not the stuff of eternity only the traveling luggage of time. So given our future, it seems only sensible that we travel light. The second reason Paul gives for linking godliness with contentment has to do with what is essential for contentment. It's not the luxuries, but the necessities of life, food and clothing, 
The word here for clothing has a broader meaning of covering, which some interpreters think may include shelter, so that you have food, clothing, and shelter. But either way, such necessities are what we are to be content with. This echoes Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, where he instructs us not to worry about what we will eat or what we will wear or to, or to be anxious for anything in this life because God provides. This does not mean we're to choose a life of austerity and asceticism. In verse 17, Paul reminds us that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. What he has in mind is the difference between being content versus being materialistic, competitive, and covetous. I don't know how the experience of staying home has affected you, but I have found that we have reduced our household spending to life's basic necessities. Everything else seems insignificant and non-essential. I'm hoping this pattern of limited spending continues once the virus is less threatening and that with our more discretionary dollars, we can become more generous givers. I've also noticed the more I'm home, the more aware I've become of how much space is taken up by objects we've acquired but don't actually seem to need. The economic and marketing drive of our world follows a very different pattern. One commentator describes it this way. Many people give lip service to the maxim that money can't buy happiness, but most of them give life service to the hope that it just might after all. Paul warns that the ambition and the desire to get rich is a perilous pursuit Giving in to greed is a fall into temptation which accelerates in a downward spiral. It turns one's attention in directions one may never have looked otherwise and leads to moral compromise. Paul calls it a trap of many foolish and harmful desires, ultimately plunging its victims into ruin and destruction. This description, when I read it, reminded me of a phrase in Shakespeare's Hamlet of someone being hoist with his own petard. I had never heard of that phrase before and learned that this idiomatic expression means to be harmed by one's own plan to harm someone else. In other words, to fall into one's own trap. Paul says this is the effect of greed. In an eagerness to get rich, people have impaled themselves on the consequences of their own disastrous desires. The irony is that those who set their hearts on gain end up experiencing total loss, including the loss of their identity, their integrity, and their own lives. Just as Jesus said, what good is it for us to gain the whole world yet forfeit our soul. So Paul quotes a common parable. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. If money is a drug, 
then the love of money or covetousness is an addiction. Paul says the desire for wealth has an inherent spiritual danger as evidence in Ephesus by the fact that some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. In making money their God, they forfeited their faith and the love of money did them in. As a correction to those who desire to get rich, Paul condemned covetousness and commended contentment. Now he turns his attention to those in the church who are already rich and encourages them to be good stewards of their wealth by practicing generosity. For the majority of us in the Western world, Paul's instructions here apply directly to us. We may not think of ourselves as wealthy in comparison to those who have more than we do, but in comparison to the world's population, we are definitely people of means and of wealth. Paul does not encourage the rich to divest themselves of their money, but he does issue a few warnings and some responsibilities. The first warning is that wealth can lead to pride and arrogance, a false feeling of self-importance and contempt for others. The second warning is that being rich can give a person a false sense of security. So Paul tells Timothy to command them not to put their hope in wealth, which is uncertain, but in God. Money comes and goes but God is the same. Unlike money, God can always be relied upon. Paul then turns to two responsibilities for this group of people, for you and for me. He says, command those who are rich in this present world to be rich in good deeds. The rich should hold their possessions loosely not placing their hope in them, but being generous with them, using our resources for the benefit and good of others. In doing so, we will be imitating God, who richly provides us with everything we need. If everything is a gift of God's gracious generosity, then, then we, in being generous, become imitators of God. In this way, they lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. This is the second responsibility, Paul says. Not to pursue what is material, but rather to invest in one's spiritual treasure. This is made clear by a quote from Martin Luther, who said, I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. When it comes to money, even the church throughout its history has offered an inconsistent and confusing message. There have been messages and practices that give way to the seduction of greed, such as the prosperity gospel, which Kent mentioned in his last sermon. Similarly, the church has catered to people with wealth in an effort to benefit from such a favorable relationship. 
And at the same time, the church has sent messages that imply wealth and faith are incompatible and have leveled guilt on those who are unwilling to part with their money. Encountering the abuses of the false teachers, Paul directs Christians in Ephesus, as well as you and me, to have a healthy and godly attitude about money. Whether the subject is family, friendship, work, community, health care, social structures, you name it. Once we add money into the mix, it changes everything. Money itself is nothing more than a human invention to make the exchange of goods and services agreeable. Yet the further money is removed from those goods, the more it becomes a commodity in itself, and we're inclined to value it and even worship it. It is this overvaluing of money and idolizing it that proves to be most costly. Money itself is neutral. Our love and excessive desire for it is the problem. I'm convinced God blesses some people with the capability to make money and to make lots of it because they're also good stewards of God's resources. They know how to handle money and their true wealth is reflected in the investments they make in God's kingdom work. In his book, The Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn reminds us that God prospers us not necessarily to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. Just as Paul connects contentment with godliness, I have learned from others that there's a strong connection of contentment with joy, specifically joy that comes from giving. Such people celebrate their giving as a reflexive response to the grace they've received from God, and then use that money as a source of benefit for the lives of others. In this way, may we learn how to align our use of money with the gospel message, so that when it comes to the lure of materialism with its obsession for possessions, we may choose to live more simply. Or when others call for a renunciation of this material world, we may protest and express gratitude for God's good gifts. When tempted by a desire for more and more money and, a, and, a, and covet what we lack, may we know contentment with what we have. And in place of, of a selfish accumulation of more and more goods used only for ourselves, may we learn to become imitators of God with increasing generosity. May it be so. Amen.